1: Good afternoon, good evening everyone. It's Across the Romaverse and we're back with something different this time. It's a beginning of a four-part miniseries where we relive the 2017-2018 Champions League campaign. One that probably made a lot of Roma fans out of some of you and some of you that were just plain old surprised because you'd seen Roma for years go without a Champions League campaign like this one. Making their names on the European stage. Steve, you're joining me today. Why? Why are we doing this? Is this prompted by uh, our next European opponents this season in 2021?
0: Yeah. So you know, Sean, Brent, and I were you know chatting about some episodes that would maybe have a little more of a shelf life rather than our just match reviews, match preview kind of stuff, and 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 kind of look into Roma's past a little bit, have a little fun with maybe a reliving an old match or a player that we all enjoyed or things like that, and. You know, originally, obviously, the Barcelona match was always one we would we would consider, and then we drew Shakhtar, and I was like, well, this is even better because now maybe we could look at a, the, the Champions League run as a whole, and that's kind of where it sprung from. And, uh, you know, we hope you guys enjoyed it, and this is our first time doing something like this, so hopefully it turns out well.
1: Yep. Yeah. Well, we're going to get straight to it. We know that the coach that year, the newly appointed coach, was Eusebio Di Francesco, relatively unproven. If he was proven instead, Serie a at all with Sassuolo... He certainly wasn't proven in the Champions He had no pedigree there, but then again, neither do Roma, really. So, match made in heaven. Uh, Roma qualified by finishing second in uh, the 2016-17 Serie A campaign with a record-breaking number of points, record-breaking number of goals scored, you name it. uh, Roma more or less did it that that year under Luciano Spalletti, except win the actual title itself. They finished second, which is good enough to get drawn into Group C, of the Champions League the following season with none other than Atletico Madrid, Chelsea and Karabay from Azerbaijan. I've been learning Turkish and uh, I'm going to stick with that pronunciation of Karabai, Um, but uh, Steve, you can call them whatever you like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Chelsea, that season, were led by Antonio Conte and uh, that was really Conte's first foray into uh, foreign football abroad away from Italy after enjoying so much success with Juventus. So he had to make a name for himself with the the Blues at the Bridge, and uh, then there was the defending. Sorry, they, they were they, Chelsea were the defending uh, Premier League winners, but then there were the former La Liga winners, Atletico, guided by Diego Simeone, who finished third in the Liga the season before to get into that group. And uh, but in the last four seasons in Europe, Atletico really started to earn a pedigree in this competition because uh, they'd finished in two finals, a semi-final, and a quarter-final. So really, Atletico were the, the fancy team of uh, of this group. And not, not just that group, but the competition outright. They were, bookies were offering 20 to 1 odds when this Group C were drawn on Atletico winning the competition with the, the, the trophy with the Big Ears. They, they were the eighth favorite team in the tournament itself. Um, and most of the talk was centered around Chelsea versus Atletico for bids uh, for supremacy in this Group C. And it was certainly added uh, with uh, a little spice to that, that little saga by Diego Costa, who was uh, stuck at the bridge, stuck as a Chelsea striker, unfancied by Antonio Conte in that 17-18 season, uh, a former top scorer with Atletico. So he was sort of like yearning to come back home when um, Atletico had a had the transfer ban imposed on them uh, in the summer of 2017 for their irregularities in dealing and signing young players. But um, no matter no matter how... Conte, uh, sorry, Diego Costa tried puffed and puffed his way away from the bridge. Antonio Conte kept him firmly rooted to that Chelsea bench. Uh, refused to really involve him in Chelsea football. I remember they had a, a spat, or like a back and forth text message. Uh, you know, so really the point of this is just that Atletico and Chelsea were stealing all the headlines and all the spotlights of the Group C, and Romo really just left there in the background. Um, it was actually between. That season, Group C and Group H, a group that contained Real Madrid, Dortmund and uh, Tottenham um, for the, the moniker of Group of Death. There's always one Group of Death every season. And Roma were really looking like they were drawn into it on Group C. So, Steve, how, how did you... Um, how did you feel about the, uh, the draw itself on the day? Do we, you know, were you thinking, oh, this is, this, is, this is our turkey cooked already?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I tend to be an optimist. So I wasn't, you know, one of those people that said, oh, geez, we're in with uh, Atletico and Chelsea that we have no chance. Uh, I certainly felt the odds were stacked against us. Definitely uh, something you would consider a group of death. Definitely on the level of that Real Dortmund Tottenham group so definitely one of the two groups of death uh, this this competition was really stacked in those two groups uh but you know i was hopeful roma would maybe find a way uh you know the pundits aren't really going to give roma a chance in those kind of groups but as a romanista you have to be hopeful
1: mm-hmm. i i yeah i just remember when the draw was done uh, i feel like that familiar sort of like feeling of uh, what did i expect you know mm-hmm. like i shouldn't have <laughs> expected anything better um drawn in the group of death uh, you know, typical Roma luck, um, and I, I just felt like, okay, if we if we just put together at least a respectable group stage run, we could uh, you know leave with the prize money, competition money for having participated, and um, just you know just don't get resoundingly beaten on the road by Atletico or Chelsea. You know, no more seven ones, please, and and I'll be happy with that. Um, you know, I would have been happy with a third place finish in that group, as it as it happened, uh, Roma had other other ideas in mind. So we'll get to that as the episode unfurls. But on the domestic front, at least, Roma's uh, form was mixed uh, in that autumn autumn spell. They, they won, they toiled to a win away at Atlanta at the Bergamo uh, with uh, Alexander Collor a free Friedrich winning 1-0 on the day, which actually reversed Roma's you know, recent fortunes against Atlanta as one of those fixtures that stood out because uh, Roma often don't win that fixture against mm-hmm. uh, the, the Bergamo club. But um, nonetheless, that was a, that was a hard-fought 1-0 win. There really wasn't one where Roma looked like they were amazing on the day. And then to make things uh, a little bit more doubtful, Roma actually lost at home against an unfancied Inter Milan side, a very different Inter side that time. Uh, they, you know, Roma went to that match as favourites, and the, the more stable of the two clubs, if you could believe. Um, <laughs> but it was Inter Milan who came out winners, 3-1 winners on the day, thanks to some brilliance from Maleric Cardi. I'll, I'll never forget that game because he was really st- stood out. Uh, but that all meant that uh, as far as the club Elo predictions went uh, when the group was drawn Roma were given a 67.7% ch- chance of finishing behind Atletico in the group and a 63.2% chance of finishing behind Chelsea so odds very much firmly stacked against Roma very much painting the Jalorossi as the third favourites in this group um, they were meanwhile given a 92.8% chance of uh, beating Carabag to third, so Carabai, sorry Carabai, Carabag, however you want to call them, uh, were really painted as the, the whipping boys of this group, uh, really expected to to be given the drubbing. Um, Roma's projected group C points on match day one before a ball had ever been kicked where it was eight point eight points predicted after six games. Would that be the case? Would Roma follow the script, or would they would they go off script in this campaign? Um, what does a team, Steve, what, what does a team when you're given these kind of odds, what does a team do when when you're when you're told basically you have a just a, just a shade over a 20% chance on paper of controlling your own destiny in a group of deaf? what what do you look to to, to really uh, navigate your way through those choppy waters does it depend on the the coach's tactics board or does it depend on the players in the dressing room at at the European stage
0: yeah I mean I think that it comes down to tactics to an extent um, especially when you're in a group with you know top class managers like Antonio Conte and Diego Simeone but you know you do favor those managers over uh, a a kind of unproven Di Francesco at that level I'd say Uh, but I think you know, in this case, considering who Roma had in the dressing room, you know, the the De Rossi's, the Kolarov's, the Jekos, the Strudman's, and just to name a few, uh, among many others, like Nangalan and Florenzi and, you know, there are so many guys that Roma could look to with that European experience, that, that big-time mentality, World Cup winners, Premier League winners. I, I think in this case, you have to tip the players uh, a little more than the manager because Di Francesco is kind of new to the, to the big stage. I, I would probably say in this case, I would go about 75% players, 25% manager. You know, in other cases, it might be closer to 50-50 or, you know, maybe the manager is able to cover up some of his team's flaws through great tactics – but I think Roma mm. here, you have to tip the the, the senatorial aspect of it, and I also think something that could go into it when you're considered a distant third in a group, uh, you know, you kind of might have that underdog mentality. Like we have nothing to lose, why not just go for it? Uh, there's no pressure mm. on you, and you know, let let's do what we can do. If we can steal a couple results, maybe we have a shot at it in the end.
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's like you said. I, I, you were thinking about you're talking about underdogs, and it makes me think about. Uh, under the logs that, that aren't Roma in seasons gone by in the Champions League. And I've certainly mm. seen smaller clubs in Roma do more with less. So um, to that extent, uh, I definitely, I agree with the balance of like, you know, tactics and, and uh, player quality comes into it. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely I tip the balance in terms of uh, uh, individual players and character comes into it more. Um, but you certainly can't dismiss tactics completely because, um, you know, like there's a small clubs that are, that are well-organized and well-drilled as a team. Uh, tend to come up and, and catch bigger clubs cold mm-hmm. if, if they're unprepared. So yeah, that that tactical aspect is always good to have as a foundation. But uh, for what really tips it to that that 75% uh players influence is is what is for a club like of the stature of Rummers. You know, I wasn't I'm not necessarily thinking about an unproven coach more as i thinking about an, an unproven club that doesn't really have a mm. legacy or pedigree at this competition. So you know when when that happens and you know you're you're representing someone like Roma um, and you're going up against, uh, you know, Atletico or Chelsea or in, in other seasons, maybe Liverpool or Barcelona, you know, traditional winners of this competition. You know that you're going up against that mental barrier of yep. away days at, at the, the you know the Calderon or the Metropolitano is now where Atletico play, or away days at the bridge, away days at newcap Camp. So it's really, you know, in those games, I feel like it's on the players, like the Senatori, like you said, to, to really... Uh, pull the dressing room together, make sure mm-hmm. that no one loses their heads, you know, make sure a 7-1 doesn't happen on the day. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, um, yeah that, that feeds us into match day one, where Roma hosted Atletico, at least they hosted them at the Olympico. it wasn't a straightaway an away match uh, in Spain, it was in Italy. Uh, could Roma pull through this one? Well, at the end, it finished nil-nil, but nil-nil really didn't tell the story. I mean, for one, Roma's defense faced four flash moments, four like real red flags throughout this 90 minutes where uh, just past the half hour in the first half, Coke turned up with a clear-cut chance on the, on the edge of Roma's box. Uh, didn't, didn't bury it. Lucas Vieto came up with a good chance in the second half. Uh, he who was uh, very much an unproven player for Atesco at the time, but sort of like seen as the, the next great hope, potentially the next Fernando Torres of, of that club. Uh, had to prove himself, but couldn't, couldn't do it in that game. And then Angel Correa came up with a clear-cut chance just past the hour. Um, and then to compound Atletico's frustration on night, you had Sal Niguez come up with a double chance at the end, one, one where he smacked it off the post and then immediately off the rebound. Uh, I believe it was either Becker saved it, Elson saved it, or, or he might have just blasted it straight over the bar. But um, certainly a lot of luck went uh, Roma's uh, way in that nil nil, wouldn't you say, Steve?
0: Yeah, I mean, just looking at the, the stat line, you know, Roma uh, got outshot 2011, 10 to 1 on target, about even possession. But from what I remember, it was a barrage coming at Allison. And, and those four chances you, you mentioned really point to that. I mean, the X, XG point to that as well Roma had a 0.49 xg uh by the end of the match uh and atletico 2.55 xg so you know they atletico in theory should have won two or three to zero or one in this match but Roma was able right. to, to hold out so to me it felt like a win at the time you know I think you brought up a great point how it was a home match to start out because that kind of onslaught at the uh caldata or Metropolitan, whichever uh venue they're playing in at the time Certainly would have been tougher to hold out, I think, for that long because you probably seed more possession and maybe even some more chances. But I mean, mm. you have to look at this as as a victory when you considered Roma's uh, European past at the time, losing to some of those big clubs, the group favorites and things like that. Um, so I think a point was a good result. And it's it's two less points than maybe I'd let to go expected to come out of that match with. I mean, to me, it felt like a, a win. Uh, what about you, Sean, at the time?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I lean on the optimist side, like you do, when it comes to supporting Roma. So it was one of those games where, okay, the performance didn't really give you much fuel after the game to, you know, stick your chest out and say, you know, we, we've got we've got a good season coming here. But mm-hmm. the result did. Um, yeah. You know, I've seen I've seen Roma crumble under pressure before, and and this time they actually came out okay with a little bit of luck. But you always need luck on your side in big games, um, and uh, you know, it just felt like okay, we, we, we've already on match day one, we've been through the worst of it, really. It mm-hmm. can't really get much worse than this, so the only way is up. And I was feeling, I was feeling buoyed after the game. I remember that. Um, even though, the, you know, I had no real reason to, because i just seen Atletico basically run Roma rugged. Yeah, But um, yeah, we left with the point. I was happy with that. Um, Roma didn't have a clear-cut chance or match that game, even though Lucas Vieto was suspected of a handball inside his own area in the 23rd minute. But uh, the ref didn't call it, and I certainly don't remember it. The only reason why i bring it up now is because I, I managed to dig it up in the notes yesterday. But um, I don't remember any kind of sense of injustice or feeling like we'd been robbed in that game. Uh, we you know, we really were happy to get a you know, smash and grab a point. And at the other end, you mentioned the man in goal for Roman was very, very busy on that night. Uh, was, was this the moment where you realized that we had something special in Alison Becker, or, or was were you looking at his performance as like, oh he's uh he's just had a you know, a good game tonight
0: yeah i don't I don't think I looked at it as you know we have a ninety million dollar man uh you know in our midst <laughs> at this point, but I think you know he was kind of an unknown heading into that season. We knew he was talented when we signed him out of Brazil, sort of the way Fuzato was looked at as a talented keeper hasn't emerged yet the way Allison has but mm. You know, he was sitting behind Mozek Szczesny for the previous season, who was one of the best goalies in Italy, ended up at Juve this season that we're talking about here in 1718. And when Allison had a match like this, you're like, you know, maybe we have something here. Maybe, you know, we won't miss Chesney as much as we thought we might. And, mm-hmm. you know, at in you know, looking back, hindsight is 2020, we did not miss Chesney at all that season. Uh, and yeah. Allison turned out to be amazing. But I think this was the first real glimpse we saw of what kind of special keeper we had. Um, and that it would just kind of grow through the rest of the season, his reputation and, and his stature in, in goal for Roma. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I can't say he was going to be an all-star at this point, but I think we knew we had something to build on.
1: Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't say uh, that I really knew or felt anything too strongly about the guy at the time. I, I, he already had my favor in 16-17, even, even as the backup people in Europa League nights, because he, he's a good-looking lad. You know, um, even as a player, like as a keeper, he looks like those kind of like those uh, you know, man-cat keepers, like the, I forget the the name of that, that Soviet keeper, legendary keeper, was known as the black cat. Um, but when Ellison was making saves, like he looked like a, a big guy who somehow could also be spr- springing mm-hmm. on his feet. Um, and that's a rare combination to have. So when you see that, you think, yeah, you know, like I, I feel like this guy's a real prospect. and And more importantly, like you want to feel like the guy at the back makes you feel safe during ninety minutes, and because of that, that, that big frame he has, that I, I liken to Peter Schmeichel in, in United days. Um, you know, when you have a big frame keeper like that, like you know, Oliver Kahn even at Bayern Munich, um, it just feels like there's there's that imposing presence at the back. Mm-hmm. Where if if your team gets caught out in a one on one, still the keeper can intimidate the, the guy on the ball. You know, into like fluffing the chance. Allison, even in the early days, was that kind of keeper for me. Um, there were also shades of what was to come for Roma later in this competition by moving to a back three already mid-game against Atletico with 20 minutes left. Federico Fazio came off the bench. Pe- people said Di Francesco could not make a, a high line work with Fazio um, in the team, but he came off the bench to replace Greg- Gregoire de Vell for the last 20 minutes of this game and Roma looked relatively more settled. There, there was never... A moment in this match where I felt like Roma looked um, calm and composed, but compared to the 70 minutes that came before, Roma looked uh, more comfortable in a back free in Europe. And that might have planted a, just a little seed in Di Francesco's mm-hmm. mind for what was to come. Um, but yeah, at the other end, Roma found uh, goal scoring and goal creation tough, tough coming. Jackro took all of Roma's four shots inside the, bo- the box that day. Uh, but none of them had a probability of more than 8% on Info goal looking back at it now. So really slim pickings for Dzeko, who vented uh, in front of the cameras at the end, uh, 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 Steve. So what, what, what do you make of Dzeko um, lamenting the new tactics on the day where he he openly, publicly lamented the, the absence of Mohamed Salah, who left uh, for Liverpool that summer, and Francesco Totti, who retired? Uh, you know, it was a... When I read out this next quote, um, what, does this sound like a, a who, uh who's, who's like recently grown that reputation of being a bad leader, bad apple inside the dressing room, or is this, is this someone who's just telling it like it is? I'll read it as, as he says it right now. He said, it'll be tougher to score goals this season because I don't touch as many balls as I used to. I think we miss Totti, but more than anything, we miss Salah as well. He used to play close to me, and now it's all different. You must be patient with this new system and improve as a team altogether. So when, when Jekyll comes out and says that your star striker comes out and says that in the heat of the moment after the game, uh, does, does that sound like you guys having a gripe or is he just telling it how it is?
0: I I think for the most part, you know, we've seen Jekyll be very demonstrative on the pitch toward teammates when things don't go his way. Maybe someone dribbles with their head down, doesn't pass them the ball. We can see him be verbal toward teammates or, you know, and and he's got the reputation, especially this season with the whole thing that went down Fonseca as as being a bad uh, captain and things like that. But I think in this case, uh, earlier in his Roma career. I think this was his third season in the capital. He was used to playing with Salah, who was a real game breaker. Totti, who's a legend, uh, would make his life very easy to, to have a, a Capo capocannoniere season like he had the previous season under Spalletti. So I think it was more him telling it like it was. Um, I don't have too much of a problem with what he said because the way he he ended it was we need patience in a new system it wasn't him taking shots at people it wasn't him saying perotti and el Sharari weren't good enough or things like that (laughs) i think it was him maybe tampering expectations a bit especially even from his own goal scoring output saying i won't be able to score as easily as in the past um you know i think it it might be tough for a striker with a, a bit of an ego to admit that but i think it's important maybe that was an important moment for him to realize maybe that he needed to change his game a bit. What, what do you make of it?
1: Yeah. I, I just, I can only, I can only really, if I'm being honest, remember how I felt at the time. Cause I actually saw that interview live. Um, I saw Jekyll speak the words and his, and just his whole, the, the tone in which he said it was, it had an edge to it. You know, it, it was the guy who uh, didn't seem like he was happy with uh, the way the club was going. And, uh, but I, I, you know, like you said have you not added that part at the end which I'm, I'm only remembering in retrospect now seeing it in writing you know having said uh we've got to be patient and we're with this new system and we've got to improve as a team altogether um have you not added that then, then I would say it's just a guy having a gripe but mm-hmm. really he had a point to it at the end which is positive which is that he's just um as you said really buying buying time for the team against expectations you have a, a Roma team that's um Set all kinds of uh, club records the season previous, mm-hmm. and uh, you know normally you expect a club to go and build on that and really challenge for the title. Whereas uh, guys who are a little bit more astute, like Jacko, who's been in scene and seen uh, and seen firsthand what his title challenge really looks like at Manchester City and what it takes to win one, you know, he sees the moves that the clubs make makes makes in the summer and he knows it's a it's a what, transition season really. So um, yeah, I think like you said. Really, the point is trying to get across was tempering expectations and defending the team. But uh, the way he said it at the time had a bit of an edge to it. But certainly wasn't helped by Di Francesco's response the next week um, in the pre-match conference after the Atletico draw, where Di Francesco was unnecessarily terse. And uh, he actually came out and said in the pre-match conference, sometimes things are said that shouldn't be said. I didn't appreciate his words, and he has to do more for the team. And that was just a brief summary of what DiFrancesco said, but uh, like you said that the, the writing was on a wall where Jekyll would have to play a more complete role for the 2017-18 season now. He couldn't just be the the guy hanging off the, the shoulder of Salah and tapping in the, the ball. He had to actually join in and, and really be the de facto replacement for Toti, you know, in that in that um between the lines, um, you know, not not outright wearing the number 10 jersey, but really being the unofficial number 10 on the pitch. Um for what it's worth, Gabriele Mercati's uh, analysis of Dzeko's interview that week was, he, he called it a grown-up player saying grown-up things. And uh, Marco Corti claimed that Italian journalists were just looking for drama out of nowhere. But uh, would Di Francesco and Jacko clash later on this season? We'll find out in this four-part miniseries. Uh, but before that, we're going to move on to Karabai, Karabai Roma uh, away in Azerbaijan. And this was match day two of Group C. And it was not just Roma against the club. This was really Roma against the nation. Uh, Calabi went into this game getting destroyed 6-0 at Stamford Bridge by Chelsea. So if they had any hopes of getting out of this group before, uh, those were even more diminished in match day two. But crucially, this was their home debut in the Champions League proper. The first time in the club's history that they were even kicking a ball in the Champions League on their pitch. And to uh, commemorate the occasion, they actually moved that season in Europe from their regular 28,000-seater stadium to a 70,000-seater Baku Olympic Stadium, where a 70,000-capacity crowd awaited Roma uh, after Roma would finish their 3,000-kilometre journey, a, a near eight-hour flight to get to Baku from Rome. Um, if you were a fan travelling into this game, you would pay just one euro fifty for the match ticket. Good news. Great news if you have a pocket, right, Steve? But um, yeah. unfortunately... <laughs> What, what, what do you think you have to pay for a flight to Baku?
0: I'm sure a few hundred euros at minimum. <laughs>
1: half a grand. Try yeah. Half a grand. Yeah. So um, uh, I don't know if uh, any one of you out there ever actually ever made the, the trip to Azerbaijan for that game. But if you did, please, please do tweet into us or comment on the front because I'd love to hear your story. Um, to add, add to the, the sort of like the nerve of the occasion for Roma, even though this was meant to be an easy away game, Uh, Roma hadn't won a Champions League away game since the 2010 victory over Baal in uh, Switzerland, 3-2 that day. And the talk in Italy uh, that week was of Roma facing their Champions League away day taboo. Um, But, you know, if you want a story about traveling to Azerbaijan as a Roma fan, try a Medi story, which was uh, told on the AS Roma Ultras forum, here's Romaultras.org, by uh, Ultra Gen Franco, who is 57 years old at the time, in 2017. And these were his words on uh, encountering Mehdi, the Roma fan from Iran. Mehdi is Iranian from a village not far from Tehran. I met him at the end of the match, under the rain, walking towards the metro. We saw each other and asked to take a picture together. He spoke to me of his passion for Roma in English, which is born from watching Roma on TV since he was a kid, from a 1998 friendly between Roma and Iran played at the Olympico. From that moment on, he became a Roma fan. He followed the team despite it being as difficult as you could imagine over the internet. And finally, he had the opportunity to come see them play driving 800 kilometers from his village in Iran to the game in Baku, on roads that are certainly no Californian highways to drive on. We exchanged phone numbers and he watched that to me a of photo with Totti Jersey a little while after. From that moment on, at every game I'll go to, I'll send a photo of our fans at the stadium to Medhi, who deserves a seat in the cover Sud more than anyone. So, Steve, when you hear that, what I think is, um, it often just flies over flies over my head, season to season, uh, the importance of a club like as big as Roma really putting together a proper, you know, season calendar where they they use that opportunity to. Um, uh, but in the international breaks to to do these international friendlies we saw recently one with um a brazilian club i the name escapes me but um you know, you never know when the next friendly against uh, a club or a country from far far away can, can earn you the next lifetime roma fan and we also we're doing this episode because you know this champions league campaign of uh, 17 18 probably won a lot of uh, new roma fans that you know are sort of like the new generation compared mm-hmm. to us who struck following in in the, in the 2000s so um, what do you make of it? And is, it, is there sort of like that awareness over there in America of the importance of, uh, of clubs doing this kind of thing?
0: Yeah, I, I, think, I think there is because, you know, being stateside here, the International Champions Cup usually comes every summer, obviously not this summer because of COVID and everything. But, uh, you know, they've done that here in the States uh, and they've also done it over in uh, Asia. I know too, playing matches. I know Roma went to Asia once, but most of the time they've been here in the United States, various locations. Um, you know, I'm, I'm over here in New York. I've seen them play at Red Bull Arena in New Jersey. I've seen them play, you know, in Boston, Philadelphia and Washington DC well, on the East coast. They've been to the West coast. So I think the American ownership is aware that matches like this can win in new, new fans. Um, nothing to maybe the extent of that Iranian friendly that may have drawn in some people back in the, when that match was, 98. but uh, 98. So uh, different kind of marketing back then. But I think, you know, when you're talking about fans of teams who they might have their own favorite club back home, but not a club that's going to be on a champions league, type stature you know you can win in those fans as like maybe roma might become their favorite european team so i think there always has to be an awareness if you want to grow the brand the way pelota did and now i'm sure the Freakins want to do um it does not hurt to bring in people as fans even if roma becomes their second favorite team maybe just their favorite european team uh if they're from mexico or south america or china or wherever it may be yeah
1: doesn't hurt doesn't to play good football on a
0: big yeah. stage either. <laughs> yeah. Win, win, winning draws in lots of fans, bandwagon or not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, Gianfranco's own story of traveling towards that game in the Azerbaijan was, he said he, he left Tuesday afternoon via link flight through Moscow, uh, arrived at Baku on Wednesday at four in the morning. The taxi driver emphasized how important this match was, not just for the, you know, not so much for the, the few fans of Karabakh apparently not a well-supported club, but, um, for the entire country of Azerbaijan as a whole. So really just emphasizing the fact that even though this is a match day two, and you probably expected us to just skim through this match, uh, it was really like Roma going on the away day from hell where they're facing Mm. a nation here. Um, Another ultra said that plenty of fans came in with Turkey and Azerbaijani flags, and you got the impression many of them probably didn't even know the names of the Karabai players. So they're really just, it's a one day event where people go out to the park and and, uh, watch the ball game. Um, well, how did the, uh, Roma's fortunes change on match day two? What was the narrative changing around Roma? Well, they went into this game with even lesser odds in the ELO rankings and when, when they began the group. Uh, their nil-nil showing against Atletico did them no favours. They, they were now with a, a 70% chance of finishing behind Atletico and a 65% chance of finishing behind Chelsea. But they were facing the, uh, the other unfancy team in this group, Calabai. So, Steve, how, how did this match eventually, eventually end up playing out?
0: Yeah, so Roma did win this match 2-1, maybe not as comfortably as many would have hoped considering that uh, Carabao got thumped by Chelsea 6-0 at the bridge. But like you mentioned, tough away environment, long travel to get here, uh, never easy to travel to Eastern Europe. Uh, Roma ended up controlling the match for the most part, 59-41 in possession. You know, they outshot Carabao 16-13, which sounds close, but when you consider shots on target, Carabao only had one and it was their goal. Um, And Roma had, you know, nine shots on target. So just to give that background... The XG, though, played out, the you know, the, the scoreline played out the way the XG kind of would have expected with Roma at 2.09 to Carabag 0.93. Uh, Roma jumped out to the early lead with goals from Costas Manolas in the seventh minute, Jekyll in the 15th, and it looked like Roma would cruise. Um, they could have went up 3-0 through El Shawari, did not get that to go in. Uh, and there in typical Roma fashion, Pedro Henrique, you know, gets one back in the 28th minute and the match becomes nervy throughout um, you know Roma held out but in the 90th minute Endlove ended up hitting the post with a header that would have stolen two points from Roman maybe derailed their whole Champions League uh, group mm-hmm. stage right there because drop points against Karabag in this group stage were really kind of a death wish so Roma were able to hold out two <laughs> one um and break that taboo on the road not not in old trafford or the camp new or any place like that but a win in a difficult environment and three points to put Roman four through two matches was was nothing to be scoffed at
1: when when you hear the roar of the the baku crowd um when you're watching it live that that day uh, just after they scored and uh it was none other than maxime Gonalas who who basically was robbed of the ball in the field and then uh, let baku sorry let um Catterall uh, punished him with an immediate goal immediately for his mistake. Well, what what were your impressions of Gonzalo at that time? He's a new signing. Uh, he was like sort of like drafted in to really like eventually take over the Daniela De Rossi role in midfield. Were you were you convinced that he could do it, or did this match just sort of like like compound your impressions of him the other in the other direction?
0: Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know much. I'd I'd never really seen him play much. I should say before he came to Roma, I wasn't like overly thrilled with the signing. It was kind of like, okay, they're making a depth move to, you know, give Dero a a breather when he needs it. Um, you know, maybe long-term future with the club, but, um, you know, this kind of was the first indication that maybe he wasn't up to snuff for Roma. I know he didn't get a ton of matches for the club, but, um, you know, it, it was more of this than the positives, I guess, in his Roma career. And that, and that kind of led to a, a short Roma career, as we've seen, even though he's been on the books for a while out on loans and things like that.
1: Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, he, he actually officially got his transfer yeah. last summer, I believe. Uh, so, yeah, he's finally off the books. But um, I I did rate Gonzalez at the time because my ex-girlfriend is a Leon fan. So, I, you know, I, I, I do actually know more about Leon than I care to know today. But, um, you yeah, know, that's just how it is. Um, I did I did rate him highly, but it's funny because the talk of him in France was that when things started to go sour for him with Lyons because they'd made the change to a midfield two, and apparently he wasn't very comfortable sharing mm. that that Midiano space with a with a teammate. So he, he moves to a 433 at Rome, and you expect him to you know to find his his, his home in Rome. But um, he, I also remember an interview he cut while while he was still a Roma player later on in the, in the seasonal covering where he said, uh, I'm a diesel engine. And uh, he said, um, he needs a run of games to really get going and really get warmed up. And in that sense, I feel like he, he got the, the rough end of the stick in Rome because you, you've signed to a club where you're expected to eventually step into the, the shoes of a club legend. You know, mm-hmm. is basically your competition in the team. Yep. You're not going to get a run of games in the team. You're, you're, you're going to get spots of, of time here and there, and you've got to show your staff. Um, unfortunately, he just didn't – he really didn't show – much of anything impressive in the in the few chances he got. And uh, that was the end of Gronola's in Rome. That was his story done and dusted. Um, but I, I'll never forget the wall of noise at, at the Baku stadium. Um, I read just yesterday when recapping this match that Alisson and Skorupski uh, were harangued by uh, Kadabai fans during a up on the sidelines. Um, that does seem like luxury days when uh, we could afford to count Alisson and Skorupski as our goalkeeper lineup with Skorupski on the bench. Um, but uh, yeah, many, many Roma players tr- actually struggled to hear their teammates in, on the pitch during that game. And as, as we said, the stadium exploded when Calabai scored that goal, even though they were behind on the scoreline. Uh, Gianfranco said, uh, he, he of uh, the ultra group said, seeing them full of joy, I can't hide the fact I was proud to be part of that moment. And uh, Il Romanista said after the game, Calabai's public announcer was uh, sort of a nightclub singer where he shouted into a loudspeaker for over 40 minutes straight uninterrupted. That was just uh, to highlight the nature of that match. But Roma left Azerbaijan winners uh, three points in hand, their first winner of the group, and they had to move on to a day out at the bridge for match day three, where the last time Roma faced Chelsea in the competition was in, uh, I believe it was, 2000, was it 2008, I think, um, where Roma won 3-1 on that day at the because thanks to some brilliance from Merkur Vucinic at the time, a brace on that day. Uh, it was sort of like if you, if you catch highlights of any Champions League game, that 3-1 win certainly one to watch as a Roma fan for Vucinic's goals alone. But uh, Chelsea went into this game in 2017, having lost their previous two matches uh, in, in England. So Conte still wasn't really winning over anyone um, in England at the time. And, and that really had a point to prove that night uh, at the bridge against Roma. Chelsea, had spent nearly £180 million on their, their squad in that summer, something that's unthinkable as a Roma fan. Uh, but Conte still, still complaining famously, mm. as his trademark is by now, of injuries, of having to play too many players regularly, and uh, probably made his point by starting defender David Luiz in midfield against Roma that night. Uh, surprisingly, the Guardian actually predicted a 2-2 draw before kick-off, so they, they clearly saw either something... Weakness in Chelsea, or some some kind of hope in Roma that the rest of us didn't see at the time, but uh, elsewhere in the group, the word was officially out that there's something wrong with Atletico Madrid. Um, you know, Roma, the, the tide was starting to change now. You know, Roma, uh, now with that that win in their pocket uh, and undefeated in this group, um, went to match day three with a forty-eight percent chance of finishing ahead of Simeone's team, ahead of Atletico in the group. This is what what in the space of two match days, Atletico go from group favorites to third place team. Um, But the unbeaten Chelsea side that Roma were facing last night were now group favorites. Uh, That being said, um, you know, in that vein, Roma had a 59% chance, they were given a 59% chance of losing this game against Chelsea and uh, just a 23% chance of a draw. Um, And uh, certainly that was compounded by Roma going into this game with uh, Manalas suffering a thigh injury. So they started this game with a, a back four of Bruno Perez Federico Faccio, Juan Jesus, and Alexander Kolarov. Um, you know, Steve, how, how did you feel before kickoff with that, that back line? And, and how do you feel about Ramos' chances? Because in the end, a draw, it was.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't remember specifically that back line. I mean, looking back now on it and thinking about Juan Jesus and Fazio, um, you know, Fazio was more reliable in his Roma career, but, you know, <laughs> thinking back where they both are now, you know, that's definitely a little mm-hmm. bit of a nervy time. They were second and third choice center backs behind Manolas. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I, 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 like I mentioned earlier, I'm an optimist. So I went in with some hope that we would get something out of the match, you know, maybe not a win, maybe just a draw, something that would uh, help our chances knowing that Atletico was starting to slip up a little bit. I mean, I think the stat you mentioned earlier about Atletico kind of slipping to third favorites by the third match of the group. state it just shows how important that initial zero, zero draw was. Um, and it mm-hmm. brought Roma in with a little bit of a, you know, hope that they could get something in a match against a, a Chelsea type team.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I agree. I mean, that's, yeah, it did turn out to be very, very, uh, Emboldening that Roma went into this uh, undefeated so far, and uh, certainly what we got was not just a draw, but actually a classic that uh, really turned a lot of heads around Europe in terms in Roma's direction, and uh, may have uh, came out with Roma looking very favourable. I mean, uh, in I was looking at the Guardian live commentary of how this game unfolded, and in the opening fifteen minutes, everyone was sort of like commenting and, and shell shocked by Roma's complete dominance of uh, of the bridge in the opening fifteen. Uh, 65% uh, possession to Roma, apparently, in that opening quarter of an hour. And uh, Guardian, the Guardian said, the reason for that is Roma giving Chelsea absolutely no time on the ball when they're trying to play out from the back. And Roma shifting the ball around the Stanford Bridge turf with such authority, most of that passing around 35 yards from the Chelsea goal, mind. I mean, the, I've Steve, when have you ever heard of a, of a Roma team being spoken about in those terms in, in Champions League? And, and take us yeah. through recap of this.
0: Yeah, not often at all. I mean, it was it was a, a surprising start for sure. Um, 65% possession, pressing Chelsea hard. Unfortunately for Roma, things did go a little bit awry early on because David Luiz, who ended up playing this match in the midfield, actually scored a goal 11 minutes in. He went to make a pass into the box it rebounded back to him and he hit it from the top of the area with authority into the goal, and he and there he did his like sliding two knee celebration that he, he tends <laughs> yeah. to do. And you, you said, Oh man, it's like one of those matches, um, you know, similar to what they went through with Juventus a couple weeks ago this season, where you know, you you open up play, you look dominant, and then you give up the goal, and you're like, Oh no, here, you know, things are going to start to spiral. Here we go again, and yeah. uh, you know, Roma continued to c- control possession, but unfortunately. Uh, in the 37th minute on a counter attack which is what you expect when Roma is controlling so much possession uh it was Morata who broke he went to make a cross it deflected perfectly to Hazard and Hazard kind of just tapped it in uh, from the far post uh Morata crossed it from the left side of the box fell to Hazard not far from the far post knocked it in and uh, it was at
1: that, that, that point when that happens are you feeling like this match is done like have you seen this script play out before
0: Maybe not done, but certainly the odds were stacked against Roma at that point, in in my opinion. You know, but uh, uh, lo and behold, just three minutes later, Alexander Kolarov, who at this point was the Alexander Kolarov who used to excite us, you know, who had something left in the tank to give for sure, uh, and was one of the best left backs in Italy at the time, uh, he made a, a great play where he beat a Chelsea defender, took a shot that took a bit of a deflection and went into the goal in the 40th minute from the left side of the box he cut in beautifully and and Rome was given a bit of hope a bit of a lifeline right before the half um and you know they continued to play that possession football where they controlled 61 percent of the, the possession throughout the match uh match Chelsea shot for shot being outshot 17 15 but uh out shooting Chelsea on target 17 4 and then as we worked our way through the second half it was Ed and Dzeko who might have had those comments that seemed a bit derogatory in the first match about how it'd be tougher for him to score, yada, yada, yada. Well, guess what? Uh, In the 64th minute, Edin Dzeko scored one of the most beautiful goals of his Roma career, one of the most beautiful goals you'll see on a European night when he received a long ball over the top from the defense and volleyed it into the goal. And, you know, listen to the call here of that goal because it was certainly a moment to remember. Dzeko, wow! Wow! where has chelsea's lead gone and there was dzeko celebrating in front of the traveling fans and just six minutes later guess what roma takes the lead uh, another dzeko goal a header off of a set piece headed at home and roma is up after 70th minute uh 70 minutes roma's in the lead and it looks like they're going to pull off in a uh, completely unexpected win at Stamford bridge um unfortunately for Roma just five minutes later Eden Hazard was left unmarked in the box he kind of found a pocket of space in the middle of the Roma defense and and headed in across you know without even jumping he was planted on the ground and just knocked it in uh to get the match to 3-3 but you know it was a thriller in London that night it was a match to remember uh and Sean you can take us through some of the reaction but I just remember this being like just an amazing match to watch
1: yeah I had the I had the time of my life watching uh, Roma that night and uh, just even as a neutral, people loved it. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into reaction in a minute, but I, I remember as a Roma fan um, in that, in that phase where Roma had finally like pulled back to 2-2 um, and the manner of which they pulled back was spectacular as well. I just remember that um, I, was, I was a little bit worried that that would be it. Like, you know, like the, you see it sometimes like, this happens a lot in tennis, where like uh, there's a guy who's, basically um like really like down mentally in the match, and then he he fights like because everything he has to get back in, and then you think, oh well, he's he's given so much just to get back on level terms, that right? You don't know whether he's actually got enough like left enough in the tank to actually you know stay stay in the game and even close out the game, um uh, or even like get ahead like he rightfully deserves, and that, that's how I felt at two-two. I felt like, well, this could be Roma. We could watch the rest of the, of the game Roma getting self-satisfied here and, and really suck for the 2-2 draw. But we didn't see that. We saw a very clinical Roma sides on that on that day where um, when Jekyll scored that third and put Roma ahead, it was like, this is just just desert. It's like Chelsea are getting what they deserve. Mm-hmm. They're, they're rightfully down on the scoreline. Uh, the, the team that are dominating the match are winning. and uh, And it, it just felt like um, Roma were really on their way to a win and really closing out in the most clinical fashion. But as you said, Eden Hazard, of all people, pops up the other end, uh, wins a header, which would probably never happen because should, yeah. should never happen because you know the, the height disadvantage there is is, is there for everyone to see. Um, but nonetheless, you know, finishes free on the day. Um, the reaction around Europe was really, really favourable towards Roma in, in a way that I've never experienced as a Roma fan in my life before. I, I'm not. Giving into hyperbole when I say that I really like I'm someone who has spent the majority of my life growing up in London among other places, and uh, I've certainly when I've watched football live, it's mostly been through British commentary. Um, I've never heard of British commentators really even paying Roma the time of day, um, not even Francesco Totti. Really, uh, I remember John Watson at, at the World Cup in 2002. Sort of saying this, Totti guy is a little bit overrated because he was placed at the <laughs> the center of Trapattoni's uh, Italy that that summer. Big expectations on Totti, uh, he didn't meet them, and then Mott You know, spent the rest of his career sort of like deriding Totti whenever every chance he got. And Roma was uh, even less than that. You know, they weren't derided; they were just weren't they were just mentioned as an afterthought in the Champions League, like a footnote. Um, and so finally, finally, like you get this like reversal of fortunes under Di Francesco where. The image of the club is changing. You know, they, even mid-match commentary, the Guardian were writing, uh, hey, "Roma aren't settling for a draw in a day here." They, they subbed in uh, El, Shawa, El Shrawi for uh, Diego Perotti in the 87th minute. They described Perotti as a, me- a pesky menace all night in terms of closing down and pressure. Um, and it was just unheard of for Roma to fancy themselves on the road away in Europe in the, in the 87th minute at the bridge, going for the win. You know, yeah, um, at uh, yeah, three two. Many many people fancied Roma to, to close out, win it. Um, Chelsea hit back. It is what it is. But um, uh, to further on a reaction, the Guardian after the final whistle was blown said, uh, Edin Hazard scored twice, one a wonder goal, but Eden Hazard scored for a brace himself to rescue a, rescue a point for Chelsea in a pulsating game that Roma dominated. The BBC said. Eden Hazard rescued, rescued Chelsea's unbeaten start to the Champions League group stage after dominant Roma had fought back from two goals down to lead in a pulsating game at Stanford Bridge. Again, um, you know, very similar words from, from the paper and the website uh, of two different titles there. The Guardian said, football can be great fun. Tonight it was, and some. Roma were brilliant. Chelsea did well to score three while not seeing much of the ball. What a treat. And do watch that checker goal. It's one of the best you'll see this season these two play again in the fortnight, I can't wait. And for me, that was um, something that I, I really had never heard of before. Like I Just people looking, like, actively looking forward to watching Roma play, like counting down the days till mm. they can see the next Jella Rossi game in the Champions League. Um, I'd never experienced that before as a Roma fan and haven't experienced it since after the season was done, unfortunately, but uh, hopefully who knows, maybe in the future. Uh, but as, as for the, the counterpoint to this 3-3 three, three performance, you know, uh, we mentioned it. You know, Roma dominated this game, uh, dominated possession, but still only came out with a draw. Um, you know, we must be sport to say only, but uh, you know, put yourself in the, the the shoes of a Chelsea fan for a minute, Steve. After that night, who who do you, you know, what what what's your impression of the game? If you if you're supporting the Blues, do, do, do you feel like uh, Chelsea uh, just let Roma have the ball and, and Roma played into Chelsea's hands, uh, or is, uh, is, this, is this one of the typical games where it shows that possession football is actually overrated in, in, in football in general? Because, uh, you know, the winners is, is, is what counts.
0: Yeah, I mean, from a Chelsea perspective, you have to be disappointed with the result. I mean, uh, not only did Roma come and dominate possession, which, which sometimes with Antonio Conte is by design, because we've seen him with Inter gladly seed possession at times. We've seen it with Chelsea. We've seen it with Juve. That's kind of his style at times. So the possession uh, doesn't always you know, make, the, make the match, um, but to blow a 2 nothing lead at home to, uh, to a Roma side that had given you those two goals early has to be disappointing. Um, minnows. Yeah. To not <laughs> we can jokingly <laughs> call them minnows, but definitely underdogs for sure. Yeah. Um, and when you have a team on the ropes 2-0, you know, uh, for Conte, who usually coaches defensively sound teams, to give up that Kolarov goal right before halftime, had to be killer because that gave Roma the little hope that they had, that they could find a result. Because if that match goes to two, nothing at halftime uh, I find it hard to believe that Roma might've found a result because then, then you're even yeah. a little more downtrodden uh, maybe Chelsea finds one earlier in the second half or Conte goes a little more defensive in the second half and, and really uh, makes it difficult on Roma to score a goal, you know, Um Because Roma's goals in that match were very nice goals. It it took special goals for Roma to score. Even the of goal was a a lovely goal. We mentioned Dzeko being one of the goals of the the season, really. And then even his header was a nice header. So uh, possession doesn't make everything because, as we've seen uh, this year, Roma gladly cede possession to a lot of teams and look to play on the counter. We've seen it with uh, Conte's Inter also at times this season. So sometimes even big clubs will do it.
1: It's a theme among the top of the table right now. You yeah. can see Milan play counter Inter, um, Roma. Very, very few teams actually play possession football and yeah. actually lead the their league. Yeah.
0: yeah. So as nice it is to to uh, aesthetically for like a Roma fan to say, "Yeah, we're controlling this match. We're controlling the ball." You know, they still gave up three goals. A couple, you know, difficult ones to, to the, the toughest one to swallow is Hazard um, heading home a goal for yeah. sure. But um, I I think from a Chelsea standpoint, back to your original question, it had to be very painful and a huge point for Roma, not only because it was a point, but also from a mental standpoint, I think really set the stage for the next match and what we saw in the next match, which we'll get into in in just a couple of minutes.
1: Well, uh, at the other end of the pitch, what what about, what do you make of uh, the trio of Perotti, uh, Gus, and Edin Dzeko in that night? I mean, I mean, We'll get more into Perotti later because this is like uh, one of those games where really showed how he's so nearly a great attacker, but missing that end product where like he, mm-hmm. he ran out the pitch in the first half and just blazed one over the ball uh, over the bar uh, that could have put Chelsea ahead on the night. Um, but Gerson is really the, like the more the bigger story of that night because um, it's not it's not the first time in his Roma career where he's he's being started on the right wing against a, a giant of uh, European football happened again uh, under Spalletti as well. So what were your feelings going into that game about the, uh, the, the Brazilian? Was he looking like a future Ballon d'Or winner as, as in his contract at the time?
0: Yeah, I, I don't remember my exact thoughts, but, you know, I, I completely forgot he even started this match because I just remember this match <laughs> for, for those Dzeko goals and the crazy comeback and, and just being an exciting match. But, you know, thinking back now, I'm sure I was so surprised to see Gerson starting over El Sharari. Um, you know, definitely unexpected because the only other time we really saw him in a big match was in that Juve match under Spalletti where he looked out of his element and Roma got overrun in that match. I remember that being a, a wild card start at the time mm-hmm. as well. Uh, you know, he's, he's given himself a career down the road away from Rome, you know um, but yeah. I remember him coming in with such high expectations. I always try to tamper my expectations with young players especially players who are coming from um, a league like Brazil or South America, where they're a little bit more unknown, Um, the competition's a little different or things like that. Or if you haven't played on a bigger club, you know, even if you're coming from a smaller Serie A club, sometimes you have to tamper the expectations because, you know, it's a big jump in in quality and things like that. Um, You know, I, I don't hold anything against Gerson. You know, he turned out to be a decent player, like I said elsewhere, but I just think the expectations were too high on him.
1: Yeah, it's a fair call. It's a fair call. I, I I, just... I couldn't figure out where his best position was. It, it dawned on me very late in his Roma career that it might have been defensive midfield, which was funny enough where Luciano Spalletti spent most of uh, his time playing Gerson in the Europa League the season before. So, uh, you know, I, I don't often give credit to Spalletti, but I feel like he actually gave Gerson the, the best regular chances to, to actually make a mark in Rome. And uh, it didn't, didn't actually happen. But if, if you're... If you happen to be a Gersten fan, um, you'll be pleased to know that he just won the Brazilian League with Flamengo this season, uh, literally only a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they actually lost that match on the day, but they were crowned champions by, by default. So, um, yeah, he's, he's actually a, a, a league winner now and a champion. Uh, meanwhile, Leandro Castan, unfortunately, got relegated to Vasco on that very same weekend two weeks ago. So, mixed fortunes for ex-Roma players in Brazil right now. Uh, but uh, what about uh, the man in the middle, the, the guy right next to Gus, and, uh, as in Jacko in the night? Well, what's his, um, his European legacy with Roma? Does, does, it, does it begin and end with this 17, 18 season? Or is, is the story bigger than that for Jacko in Europe with Roma?
0: I mean, the, the, the story has to be bigger because he's, he scored so many goals for Roma now that he actually broke Totti's record. We had mentioned this on a podcast recently. You had brought it up that he broke Totti's mm-hmm. European goal-scoring record. Uh, you know, made it all the way to the semifinals. Uh, uh, and Roma did it on a lot on his goals in this, in this uh, Champions League run. You know, he was active throughout. He scored some big goals. Uh, so I think his European legacy has to be, you know, cemented as one of the best, at least, attackers in Roma history. You know, no other Roma team except for that 84 team that went to the final against Liverpool has really made it this far in a big competition in Europe. So Jekka was a big part of it. So you have to give credit where it's due, I think.
1: Yeah, I I, I agree. Uh, I read the comments on YouTube of the the highlights of this game, and and there were a lot of Premier League fans that were saying, "Jaco is so underrated; it's sinful," and comments of that nature. So he's certainly highly revered um, for his European performances. But do you, what version of Jacko do you prefer at uh, Roma? Looking back on the totality of his career, if you take it season by season, what who, who's your favorite? at Jacko.
0: I mean, the the most fun Jeco to watch had to be the sixteen seventeen Jeco that won the um, Golden Boot and and the Capo Caniniere. I mean, he scored almost thirty goals in, in domestically for Roma. Uh, hard not to like that that jecko, But you know, when he's scoring big goals like he did in this competition, I guess that has to be my favorite. Just in this kind of like, you know, smaller picture. I guess it would be like it'd be almost like a. Like a, a smaller if, sample if it was size, a highlight reel. yeah. If highlight it was a highlight reel. reel, then it has to be the Champions League run. But um, in yeah. terms of like an overall season, you gotta you gotta favor that Capo era season just because it was special and Roma was so special on offense that yeah. season.
1: I can't I can't argue with you. you know, I'm never, I'm never gonna argue against goal scoring. You know, you, that that's always fun to see from a striker. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna take the highlight reel version of Jacko um, this time because I really like, from the heart. Um, that 17-18 season was my favorite of his career where he's asked to be a more complete player and as we saw he didn't necessarily like what he was being asked to do at first but uh, he actually sort of underrated himself because he or underestimated himself rather because he, he grew into the task beautifully. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that goal he scored on that night at the bridge with, had a probability of 6% and he hit it right where it needed to be smacked into that into that goal um, but more so much more than goal scoring he brought um, assist, clinical finishes, uh, he was asked to, to be like the center of the attacking unit that often was made up of uh, kids as the season went on with under becoming a bigger factor um, and then you know, just just the responsibility of essentially walking into Francesco Totti's boots in terms of role in the team I mean, he wasn't outright wearing the number 10 jersey but he was the unofficial number 10 of that Roma side in that, in that season that's a big responsibility to take. Not not many players had the character to deal with that on a personal level, and I think that the fact that Jako actually did turn out to prove that he was ready to that task is you know there's more than I can put into words about Ed and Jako, the person and the player. Uh, but his um, his buddy, his ex-Manchester City teammate Alexander Kolorov, stole the, the man of the match awards for that that game at the Bridge, um, and uh, for good reason too. He took the more touches than any other of the 22 players of that, that night, 99 touches of the ball in total, a game high number of uh, 64 passes, more than anyone, and more tackles than any other Roma player would for. And he, and just if that wasn't enough to convince you, he popped up with a goal and an assist, um, and including the one that, you know, w- that really got Roma's heads back up and into this game, like you said, Steve, uh, mentally back into it just before halftime with that, you know, just that push and run shot into this, into the corner. So, um, you know, a lot of people would leave a performance like that and be thrilled as a Roma fan. Oh, great, Kolarov's doing brilliant. Uh, but I'm going to ask you in a more cynical level. Uh, you know, how was it? Was it apparent to you that Kolarov had a, a a huge influence on the on the team at that point and that play? And if so, was this the beginning of? EDS football going wrong because it was maybe getting too dependent on Kolarov down that left side.
0: Yeah. I mean, it could certainly be looked at that way because this was vintage Kolarov. This is the reason Roma signed him and he gave us these kind of performances that, that kind of influenced Roma to be so left heavy uh, because there were so many issues at the right back position as well. You know, when you have a player so special on the left, it's easy to start to, to become dominant down that one side. We see it still now with Roma with Spinazzola being, uh, having a great season he's kind of taken over that Kolorov role where a lot of the play goes through him um, but in terms of his influence on the dressing room and the team I think it was you know I think it's huge in matches like this I, I look at the way that roster was made up and you saw Kolorov you saw Dzeko two ex-City players who won the Premier League have been to Stanford Bridge numerous times have won at Stanford Bridge numerous times with Manchester City you even have a player like Fatio who you know, wasn't so highly regarded when he came over from Tottenham, but he's been in this environment before. They've been in these uh, English stadiums where they weren't overwhelmed. Durham was not overwhelmed by by the, the spectacle of playing at Stanford Bridge on a European night, and they were able to bounce back from 2-0 down, and that kind of just shows the, the mental fortitude that players like this kind of bring to the table into the dressing room where, you know, Kolarov yeah. can go into that locker room at halftime and say, look, I got us a goal back. Let's go and get a couple more, and they did. Yeah. You know, we we aren't in the dressing room, but that has to – Definitely buoy the hopes of a team, um, you know, that, that was hit twice, even though they dominated possession. And with a, a young manager in charge, too, who maybe doesn't command the dressing room, that maybe like an Ancelotti would or someone like that, who can say, I've mm-hmm. been here, done this, we can do it. So you kind of look to those senatori, And I, th- I think that the influence is important there.
1: Yeah, that's fair enough. But uh, yeah, the game did finish free free and Chelsea did escape that game, still unbeaten and still group favorites. Um, as Steve mentioned, uh, they actually act, they racked up more XG on the night than Roma, but both teams racked up less than 2.0 XG. So it highlighted a, a strange mix of a match that brought absolutely everything. There was a, a good clash of styles in the night. It was a, sort of like a Ali versus Frazier kind of thing, where one one team is really focused on the ball and the other team is really focused on rubbing them of the ball. And then um, it was kept. But you know, despite those good collective performances from all 22 men. It was capped off by individual brilliance in terms of scoring hard goals, you know, hard goals that you don't see scored every week, hard to come by. So uh, a very, very unmissable game. And if, if you happen to be fortunate enough to uh, you know, uh, run, walk, run into a TV recording of this game, uh, this is one game that you, you'd want to watch the full 90 minutes of. Um, but before we uh, TVO anything out of our day, we're going to take a commercial break and uh, we'll be right back. All right, we're back and we're going to talk about the reverse fixture now where Roma were welcoming Chelsea to the Olympico and my God, how things have turned in the space of three match days. Roma now in the ELO rankings with a 68.7% chance of finishing ahead of Atletico in this group. Certainly that three-three free draw and the manner of it at the, uh, Stanford, at the bridge, uh, it turned a lot of heads in Europe and um, Roma were now favourites to go into this match against Chelsea on the night itself, a 42% chance of winning against contest Chelsea, with Chelsea only given a 30% chance of escaping the Olympico with all three points. The least favourite outcome, though, uh, which is surprising given the the three three draw that happened just before, was a draw itself at the Olympico, which It's just a 20% chance of that happening. Um, obviously, that that wouldn't uh, wouldn't be the outcome in the end. Uh, Roma winning three 0 uh, but nonetheless at kickoff Chelsea would uh, would be strutting their stuff in the Olympic because they, they knew that they, if they sealed the uh, sealed the win on the night they could steal qualification in the group so you know win and they could be done and dusted with this but Steve that's not how it turned out was it
0: no not at all Sean and this was if you know the 3-3 draw at the bridge was uh you know just a uh, in you know just a, a, an awesome match to watch from a neutral perspective, even from a Roma perspective to get a result like that and score three goals. Um, this match was exhilarating as a Roma fan because Roma came out and just one minute in El Sharawy scored a goal. It was a, uh, you know, Kolorov kind of played a ball in from the left, hit Dzeko where the defender who were running towards the goal felt El Sharawy and it was a beautiful outside foot hit. And this is what it sounded like on the call. Il centrali di era leggermente troppo spostato in avanti. Palla verticale a cercare Geco! Colpito dal pallone, ma attenzione perché è un assist e 1-0! Ed è 1-0! Subito il Ceravi! Subito il Ceravi! Il Faraone! Secondo gol consecutivo! Anzi, secondo gol pazzesco consecutivo! And then you know just a couple minutes later Hazard almost leveled it. He, Hazard was in uh had a, had a chance and it was almost right away back to all square. And then things could have gotten in- interesting, but you know, Roma survived because Chelsea had their chances in this match. Each team had six shots on target, but then again, it was El Shirari who popped up in the 36th minute. It was a ball played in, I believe by Rajanangalan over the top uh, Antonio Rudiger, who was a Chelsea player at the time kind of watched the ball, take an awkward hop past him. El Shirari got in and kind of just did a little flick past the goalkeeper. And just like that, it was Roma up two nothing. And then things continued to go, you know, Roma's way where Chelsea had their chances. There was a corner kick with a header that went wide. And as the match wore on, you know, Roma were growing in confidence up to nothing. And then there it was in the 63rd minute, Diego Perotti, who we mentioned for missing a chance or two in the first, uh, you know, match between these two teams two weeks earlier, sealed the deal for Roma with a lovely strike from outside the box of probably about 20, 25 meters out uh and this was the ecstatic call from the roma commentary bravo perotti 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 3-0 roma 3-0 roma and just like that you know it was the the horror show uh, you know the halloween horror show for chelsea this match was played on halloween and it turned into a real nightmare um, i'm sure chelsea will be, you know, reliving the ghost of this one if they ever return to the Olympico anytime soon because it was <laughs> yeah. just a, a, a Roma th- thumping 3 nothing you know. Who, I don't, you know, we we knew Roma could score against Chelsea after the first matchup because they did score three goals uh, in the bridge, which was impressive. But to do it in this kind of fashion, 3 uh, in a match that Chelsea had their chances. So Roma did have a little luck, you know, and like Sean mentioned earlier, you're always going to need a little luck in certain matches against big clubs. You know, because the XG said Roma 1.47, Chelsea 1.36. But, Sean, this was this was an amazing win. And when you look at what El Sharari did in this one, you know, he's back now after his time in, you know, China. Can we expect the same mm-hmm. kind of things from him maybe in the upcoming Europa League matches or just down the stretch for Roma?
1: I hope so. I mean, first of all, I, I just I'd say, I, the reason why I, I remember this game very clearly, aside from Roma being very clinical and ruthless, uh, was that, um, I was watching it live and before kickoff, as, as the players were walking out onto the pitch, I'm watching it on BT Sport here in London. Um, well, I, I think I actually might have been in Italy at, at that time, but I was like, sort of like piggybacking off my uh, cable subscription back here in London. And um, uh, the commentary as they're walking out onto the pitch, the, the commentary actually says, This is the most anticipated game in Europe this week. And uh, even The Guardian wrote before kickoff plenty of Champions League group stage matches have the whiff of non event about them but this is unlikely to be one of them. And again, it just takes me back to the, the theme as, as a, a London born and raised Roma fan, I'm just not used to hearing yeah. Roma spoken about in that way at all. It was really eye-opening. And that's one of the reasons why I really like, I'm, I'm thankful for that De Francesco season because it's, it's something that I'll take I'll carry with me for many years. But yeah, turning back to Al who uh, rightfully so was one of the stars of the night, um, You know. As as far as what he brings to the team now, I certainly hope that, uh, and I believe uh, that he will, you know, bring those, uh, those spectacular goals that we see from him. Like, not not many players have the panache to score that outside of the boot foot uh, opener at uh, nil nil in a big match. Um, but we have one of them in El Sharawi, so um, you know I'd expect more of that because uh, as far as like. His alternatives in the team now, a lot of changed since the 17-18 season. Before, before, we had Diego Perotti really as the, the only you know, senior player that could live with him. And, you know, as we said, Perotti didn't really have a, a finish on him. So, Shawari w- was uh, a different enough player that you could definitely see him being a regular starter in the team back then. Um, but now, you have Mkhitaryan, you have a, a more mature Lorenzo Pellegrini. You have Pedro, if you want to count him in there. You have Carlos Perez, who's a, a, you know he's is, is, is shown that he can do his thing when he's when he's on form. Uh, so really, the one thing that makes S. E. S. stand out, like his his uh, unique uh, selling point at this point, is just the fact that he can score those uh, really like charismatic finishes out of nowhere in big games, and that's that's what I hope he brings to the team this year. Mm-hmm. What well, what about um, him playing on the right side in that game and and during that season? We're seeing that he's he's being asked to play on that right side now on the Palo Fonseca. Do you think that um, that will at all be an issue or, or do you think al wise uh, you know, good to play where, wherever he wants?
0: I mean, I think his preference is always going to be to play on the left because he does love to curl that, that ball in with his right foot, um, likes to cut in also on the dribble and and make plays like that. But I think he will play wherever, you know, he's asked to play. He doesn't seem like someone who's going to make, make a, a mess of things if the coach plays him maybe in his less preferred place I think he's happy to be back and I think you know especially after being away in China besides making those millions of dollars I think it puts things in perspective for him that I think he's happy to be back in a place like Rome and competing for a Champions League place and in back in European matches and he's also looking for a place in the Italy squad so uh, for the Euros right. this summer so you'd have to think he wants to show he's as adaptable as possible for Mancini because you know, Italy often plays with a three-man front line, and, and he if he could play both wings, all the better for his chances.
1: That's a good point. That's an excellent point, actually. Yeah. Um, elsewhere on the pitch, what, what did you make of? Uh, you mentioned Rudiger um, not having the best of the nights at the Olympico that 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 night. Um, were were you, were you ever really on board a team Rudiger at the Olympico? Because I I know I for sure was. You know, I was I was very bitter about the fact that he was made to leave that summer of 2017 when Costas Melanas had had a, a move agreed, at least with the club between Zenit and Roma, and then Melanas backed out and said, I'm, I'm not leaving. So we ended up with Roma being forced to sell Rüdiger to Chelsea. And uh, I certainly I felt like a ball-playing defender like Rüdiger was exactly what uh, Eusebio Di Francesco was missing for that 17-18 side where um, we talk about a Roma that's being more and more dependent on Kolarov to either dribble his way through the opposition or, or come up with those you know, passes straight to Jacko, uh, those through balls between the lines. You know, if we if we had someone in the middle besides Flazio who could do it well enough, but if we had someone on, on the right side of the pitch also that could do it, um, you know, sort of like threading those balls between from defence straight to to attack, playing that vertical football like we have now with Gianluca Mancini, um, I felt like that. EDS season as good or as as average, depending on how you want to see it, it was, I feel like it could have been even better. So, um, you know, I was, I was certainly very dejected when Rudiger left Olympico, but how, how did you feel about it? And did you, when you saw this performance on the night itself, did you, did you feel like Roma had really done actually a good business by getting 28 mil from Rudiger after a mm-hmm. night like this?
0: Yeah, you know, I I, I like both Monolos and Rüdiger. Uh, I don't blame Manolas for not wanting to go to Zen at St. Petersburg at the time. You know, even though they were a Champions League type club, it's, you know, if you're looking from a league perspective, Russia is a step down from Italy. So I could see why he would have, uh, you know, not wanted that move. In terms of Rüdiger, you know, I thought he had good potential for Roma. Unfortunately, I had to sell him because of financial reasons. But, I, you know, you would think that center back was a position Roma was able to fill fairly easily in those seasons. We've seen them bring in plenty of good center backs in the past decade or so. Um, but if, if you're talking about just this, this one match in like a microcosm, uh, you certainly had to feel a little bit better about the sale because that second goal was not completely on him. But, man, if he, if he did just clear that ball out, it stays one nothing for longer. And maybe Chelsea finds their way back into that match. So, yeah, I mean, it, it maybe takes away some of the regret of selling him at the, in that moment.
1: Mm. Well, uh, It was uh, Rudiger's loss with Roman's game on that night. And uh, they were now leading the group. Um, outright, what, what a, again, what, what a of fortunes from the predictions on match day, match day one. Uh, but their, their next test was arguably their, their greatest test on paper, going away to the Wanda Metropolitano away in Spain. That was Atletico's newly minted stadium at the time, gifted to them with Chinese money, Chinese funding. Uh, before that, they were playing at the Vicente Calderon, and this was sort of dubbed the, the, the Nuevo Vicente Calderon, um, the unofficial name of their new home. But inevitably the question that follows a, a, a club moving house, so to speak, is does the does their, their home form go with them if they have that invincible aura, which Atletico did at the Calderon in Europe, had that sheen of Atletico's invincibility deserted the club now that they've moved. Um, in a new home at the Wanda one, they, to, they, they were hard to score against, but they also found it hard to score, which is very much how it turned out to be for Eusebio Di Francesco as Roma in the, as that season went on. Um, but all that being said, Roma were going into that game with a 48% chance of losing and a 29% chance of a draw. Just, just a 22% chance of a win for Roma on the night. So, let's go. despite their middling form domestically and in Europe, they're still very much favoured on the night to, to beat Roma. Uh, despite the fact that Roma were coming into that, that game with their tails up, fresh off a 2-1 win in the Derby della Capitale against uh, Lazio the prior weekend. But, um, you know, he had a very motivated Atletico side on, on the other end of the pitch. who had to see this game in black and white turns because Atletico needed to win this match. It was a do-or-die match uh, for Atletico where they knew, even if they won, that um, they it might still not be enough because Roma and Chelsea went into those final two match days with the luxury of knowing that each of them could respectively just beat Calabay, and uh, they'd um, they'd be through. They'd be qualified, and then would really be knocked out. So uh, that was a, a very um, a strange match of chess before, before anyone had even kicked the ball in Spain. And uh, Roma really could afford to go into that knowing that they could afford the loss, but they couldn't afford a, a 7-1 loss. You know, that would m- mentally set back the team for the, for the, for the season's campaign ahead. Um, Steve, how, how did you feel going into that match, and how did you feel after uh, Final Whistle when Atletico winning 2-0 on the, on the night?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, going in, this was always going to be a difficult match. You know, Atletico dominated Roma in that first match, like we, we said, and Roma were able to pull out that big 0-0 draw that almost felt like a win because Atletico were so dominant. Um, you know, so my expectations were, you know, tampered. I You know, I, the win at the bridge, not the win, but rather the draw at the bridge was huge. I didn't know if I expected the same thing here because, you know, for Roma to go through a a group undefeated would have been, would have been kind of, kind of bananas in in a way, so to speak. Um, But, you know, I give Roma credit because they matched um, Atletico many ways in this match. Possession wise, it was 51-49 Roma. Um, You know, they hung with them. They didn't give up a goal until the 69th minute. And it took something really special for Atletico to score because for all their chances with their 16 shots and five on target, uh, I'd like to go fondly broke the deadlock on a great play um, both from Correa who made a sliding cross to keep the ball in from crossing the goal line and, and not mm. conceding a goal kick and then Griezmann yeah. scored a, a lovely scissor kick volley um, to put it in and like it's one of those things you have to tip your hat because you know for Roma to hold yeah. out for almost 70 minutes uh, tooth and nail fighting them you know despite only having one of their own shots on target you know, it almost looked like maybe Roma could pull another zero zero draw out of the hat out of nothing. Um, but it wasn't to be, they gave that lovely goal to Griezmann who uh, was active throughout the match. And if you watch the highlights, he pops up two or three other times with, with shots that went, went wide or, you know, but just was in good positions. Uh, and then Bruno Perez got that straight red in the 83rd. And then just a couple minutes later, it was Grimiro who uh, rounded Allison and, and slotted home the the game really clinch or two nothing, but even this match, even though it was a loss, you still had something that you could hang your hat on and say, you know, Roma can hold out against these big, big clubs. They went to a tough environment. They didn't get beat up three, four, five, nothing, or seven, one like we've seen in these other matches. It was a respectable defeat, I guess you could call it, because of the way they were able to, to hold out. And really, they were in a good position, in the group, so you could afford a loss and not have to dwell on it too much, especially with Karabagh as the, the last match at home. You expected Roma to win that match.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a typically posit- positive outlook on it. I, I, I certainly share it. I, I was happy happy enough with uh, the way that Roman left that match. But I know one guy who always leaves you a cause of positivity and optimism is uh, Lorenzo Pellegrini, who who got a, a European away start in that game uh, on the night itself. Uh, which is very different from starting Pellegrini today. Back then, he was what, 21 years old? He was about so, 21
0: when he came back, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um, really, like, to, for all intents and purposes, his debut season with Roma. I know, I know he made his debut with Roma a few years before that, but this is really his first full season with Roma, and he's getting started. You know, like like Gerson at, at starting at a bridge, Pellegrini is starting at the Wanda Metropolitano. Um, well, what did you what did you make of uh, your impressions of Pellegrini that game in terms of mixing it up with the Atletico midfield, and, and did you did you feel like you saw um, the potential in Pellegrini immediately, or, or was it a bit more of a snowballing affair?
0: Yeah, I mean, I remember being excited about Pellegrini when he came back. You know, he had two very strong seasons at Sassuolo. Uh, Roman born and bred, came through the Primavera ranks highly regarded. And it's always exciting to have good young players, especially good young Italian players. And on top of that, Roman's, you know, with Roman's reputation for, for breeding those Roman players. Um, uh, not surprised when he got, when he was a bit outmatched in this, in this match. You know, not only was it a start against Atletico, it was a start on the road against Atletico. as a young 21-year-old kid. Um, you know, he's not the player he was now three years later where he's added a, a little bit of a more physical presence to his game, a little more defensive responsibility to his game. So not surprised at all. Um, didn't dampen my spirits on him too much, but, um, you know, not, nothing to get excited about here. But I, I think the potential was always there with him. And we're finally starting to see it now as he develops into his mid-20s. Yeah,
1: yeah. And who knows where these guys would be if they they hadn't had the Francesco, the crazy young coach to block mm-hmm. them in, in, uh, in, in matches. They had no right playing. Uh, but as, as Steve said, we you know, went into that match with the comfort of knowing that our last match of the group phase was at home at the Olympico against Karibai. Um Roma, going into this final match day six, had a, given an 85% chance of winning against Karabai on the night, 11% chance of a draw, and just a 4% chance that Karabai would uh, win against all odds at the Olympico. Uh, Roma, Roma's projected points going into the last match day were... 10.7. So effectively 11 points predicted um, uh, to finish on in the group and that's exactly how it ended up in, in real life. They finished 11 points uh, level with Chelsea in the group but uh, won the group on results against after beating Carabao on the night 1-0. Um, you know, Roma in this, uh, into this game in terms of the group picture were second favourites um, uh, in the group with a uh, 51% chance of finishing behind Chelsea, so it, it was a you know negligible like uh, advantage that Chelsea had in terms of Elo rankings. But uh, still, you know, there was still that element of doubt: would would Chelsea go into the game? Sorry, would sorry would Roma leave this group as uh, as finishing second or first? Really, it was really Chelsea's group by rights to win. But it turns out Atletico, uh, for all their troubles of that season so far, were intent on dragging Chelsea down with them. By held holding Chelsea to a one 0 draw at the Bridge, which Roma thanked them for very nicely, because uh, at the end of a nervy match at home, uh, Steve, they they came out with a one 0 win and they they won the group. What was the importance of that? And what was the what was the mood of the the, the match that night?
0: Yeah, it was definitely important to win the group. I mean, I, I so often as someone who started following in the Roma in the mid 2000s, you know, Roma's won a group here or there, but most of the time, second best in their group, and you know that always presents you with the tough challenge of. Facing some some real good competition in the round of sixteen, you know I remember, I, geez, it was probably back in the the late two thousands now when we actually went to Madrid and actually won as you know yeah. A, yeah. A, a, a not favorite team in the round of sixteen. But a lot of time we were presented I, with Quilani. those kind of yeah presented with those kind of matchups. So you know winning the group was significant, I think, from a confidence standpoint of the team uh, to kind of put Roma in people's eyes, wow, like this team. Won a group of death with Chelsea and Atletico. I think it built the reputation a little bit. I think it was important for a lot of reasons. As a fan, it felt good, um, you know. But this match was not easy because Roma. You know, we we've seen Roma choke against smaller clubs in Serie A and Europe, wherever you want to look. We know that Roma sometimes doesn't play with the big big dog mentality when they are the big dog in a match. Um, and Kaurabag, for their you know, part, made it difficult on Roma. Roma had 20 shots in this match, eight on target, 63% possession to you know, Kaurabag's two shots on target. But it took 53 minutes for Roma to find a breakthrough, and it was a broken goal at that for Roma to find the goal. It was, uh, you know, Dzeko made a run into the box. Strutman got it to him. Goalie saved it. It popped up high, and of all people, to head it home. It was Diego Perotti from within about two yards of the goal to head it in. Uh, and that was all Roma would score. So it felt like it had the makings of one of those Roma, like, you know, disappointments in the end. But, it, you know, Roma managed to find a way through it and win the group. And, you know, they, they went into the round of 16 with some confidence and, and something to hang their hat on, like a, a bit of a prize at, at that by winning the group, I guess you could say.
1: We, we should we should relive that moment just for a minute. Let's hear,
0: let's hear what that project goal sounded like.
1: And yeah, as he said, uh, Roma leaving that match with an XG of uh two uh, 2.10 on the night versus carabags is, is uh, 0, 0. 0.44 so um you know it, it did look like a typical roma choke job in the making at the time where you know your your favorites you're, you're facing the the suit end at the Olympico and and just not getting it done but um i think my my memories of that match were just pure relief afterwards that we'd come through the win because uh, it just looked like as you said um one team was shutting up shop and, and roma were finding it difficult to even really believe that they could break them down. And, and you know, with, with the whole stage being set of potentially being able to win the group, it would have been typical of Roma to just fall at the last hurdle and uh, end up with second place. But as you also said, you know, as a Roma fan, I've rarely ever lived through a time where Roma uh, advanced in the lockout stages as outright group winners mm-hmm. in the Champions League. Uh, normally, uh, with the Champions League being what it is today with such an expansive format, um, normally Roma like sort of like sift through the group stages as, as best case scenario as like the dregs in the in the slipstream of a, of a big club like the Barca or, you know, Bayerns, whoever's leading a group at the time. Um, so to, to get through as group winners is certainly uh, something different, a new new flavour to taste as a Roma fan and uh, probably very important in addressing as well because, you know, you go into that knockout phase, not only knowing that you have home advantage in the second leg, but um, also just knowing that, you know, you're there by rights, you know, you, you won your group, you beat mm-hmm. all the opposition went in front of you uh, to that point. Um, but not just, wasn't just the time for club the club or the team realizing their worth on the pitch under Di Francesco that season. Uh, it was also the beginning of the, the club as a whole, realizing its uh, potential worth uh, both on and off the pitch under James Balota at the time. Perhaps uh, this was the beginning of Roma's uh, master plan to, you know, construct the, the Death Star. Some might see it as a Stadio della Roma, uh, something that when it's finally finished and built, whenever that will be, uh, would mean that Roma finally have the license to, you know, connect the stadium with the airport, connect the stadium with uh, the the rail links around town, and uh, finally maybe even replace local fans with high net worth individuals, international traveling fans, you know, the type of fans who can afford to make a 3,000 kilometer trip to Azerbaijan and then pop up on on Thursday morning at work the next day, uh, you know, with their iPhone or their, whatever's going around today is the the luxury phone of of today. Um, You know, this was a, a, a match where we're gonna go to AS Roma, another AS Roma Ultra on the Ultra boards, Stefano, who, his, this was his reaction at seeing the match uh, against Calabai at the Olympico on the night itself. He said, for me, it wasn't the core of a suit that helped the team unlock the game, but the opposite. Um, and his argument, essentially paraphrasing him now, was that he felt there were too many plastic fans, quote, unquote. He, he didn't actually use that word, but just, we're just going to paraphrase his argument. You know, too many, yeah, It's a familiar argument. Too many plastic fans at the Olympico on a, on a on a European match day, because you know what the Champions League match days are, Ones where the typics are, that more tickets are sold to the public, the general public, rather than uh, the usual weekend match day crowd. So I felt there were too many plastic fans. And he said, I've been going to the Coupe for nearly 15 years and I don't see the Grinta that was there in the past. Today, in sectors 18 and 19, there were just a dozen fans actually singing. There were a lot of casual fans with a match ticket who were expected to stay seated all game. Brazilian fans, English fans, Fans and fans with phones in their hands, WhatsApping away. So Stefano really taking a dig at the type of fan that turns up, uh, treats Rome as, as a tourist destination for the day, and uh, pulls out their phone, maybe takes a selfie with their loved ones, and you know, posts it to Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, and says, "Hey, I was, I was here watching Roma win for the day. Uh, I was there when Diego's Perotti scored the winner." Um, you know, Steve. I don't find anything wrong with being that type of fan. But then again, I probably am a plastic fan in many people's eyes. Uh, Is this a a good or a bad thing for the game that there's this kind of like this survival of the fittest race happening now where uh, local fans might find themselves effectively low priority in their club's eyes compared to what the club could be bringing with international profile fans?
0: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think it's something we're seeing around the the sports world. I mean, I could speak as a New York Yankee fan, the difference between the old Yankees game and the new Yankee team, which has been around for about 12 seasons. Now you see a much more corporate feel to it, more people on their phones. But I also think that, you know, you see that in other venues too, just because, you know, with the, the internet built into the phone and these things, when the match isn't so exciting, people turn to their phones. I think, I think it's, you know, a combination of things. I think for those old school diehard fans, it is certainly disheartening because there's nothing like the atmosphere at some of these European stadiums that you see on TV and some of these big matches. Uh, And if you do fill a stadium with too many of these quote unquote plastic fans, it does take away from the atmosphere. Uh, It takes away from the authenticity, I guess, in some ways. But from a club perspective, you have to find that sort of middle ground where, you know, you have those old school fans making the place a bit raucous when someone comes into town. But also, you know, you get these other fans that you're attracting in because your brand is growing. And if, you know, there's someone from, you know, the Middle East in in Rome that day and they see an attractive European football match and they want to take it in or someone from the States or from China or from wherever in the world they may have come from as a tourist and they want to take in a match and they're going to bring, you know, a considerable amount of uh, revenue into the team too and maybe become Mm -hmm. fans, I think. Uh, the club has to weigh that balance too, so it is a tough balancing act, I think, for the club. Um, you know, you want the court of a suit singing, you know, full, you know, in 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 all its glory on these European but do, nights. Do you
1: actually? Because we've seen 2016-17, the a suit was empty. Roma broke mm. league records that 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 season. Uh, yeah. This season, playing in, in closed stadiums, Roma look far more confident than they usually do. Is is the curva suit actually a blessing
0: or a <laughs> Well, I was thinking more from like a, a, a worldwide perspective, seeing Roma on TV. Yeah. I think it looks good uh, on TV. <laughs> um, but yes, we know the the downside sometimes of the curva suit uh, and the pressure it puts on players. Yeah. Um, and just one that, quick I... side note I had, because I went back and looked at Roma's uh, Champions League history in the group stage. The only time yeah. they had won the group prior to this group was actually in the 2008-2009 season when they did beat Chelsea in that match that you mentioned, they won that oh. group with 12 points to Chelsea's 11. Uh, but other than that, it was a uh, second place. And when they advanced every other time.
1: Who, who else was in that group that year? Is it Val and someone else? I think. It was
0: uh Cluj and Bordeaux.
1: Oh, Cluj. And, okay. and then
0: we, then yeah. we lost to Arsenal on penalties in the round of 16.
1: Yeah. That was gutting. Uh, mm-hmm. that, was, that was really gutting. Oh man. I remember that loss with Batista. Um, Yeah. I guess I, I, I kind of like chuck in that. That question there because I, I'm thinking about the light in which um, the Italian football fan is painted right now. Like, I mean, you mentioned that uh, there's this similar like friction going on in in America, which is refreshing to hear because um, in Italy it sort of seemed like being loyal to the to the to the ultra fan is like being loyal to a, a, a day that's now come and gone. Mm-hmm. Where nowadays, like um, you know, the like the average Italian fan is probably. Um, not necessarily has the same opportunities to earn or opportunities for growth in their life as uh, like the average young American fan in, in America. So the uh, consequence doesn't necessarily have the same amount of uh, disposable income to bring mm-hmm. to match day for the club. And also, you, know, you have that, that mafiosi element in Italy where um, there's uh, like a history of uh, people making the news and, and making positions of power and uh, with getting ahead in life not necessarily based on merit or competence, but just based on violence and uh, you know the cheapest form of, of getting to power. Um, and then you, you find that as that's spoken about um, among the you know the, the Roman prefect and, and authorities around the city, as like that's a, that's the frustration that the everyday uh, law-abiding Roman fan carries into the stadium on weekends, where they feel op- oppressed or repressed in every other area of their life so mm-hmm. they then decide to act like a mafioso on match day weekends where they they you know it's like the hurt hurt people hurt people kind of thing where like they'll find a, a fan of an opposition team and you know they'll start of, you know just have a fight for the weekend and get your get all your aggression your, your pent-up frustration out that way and sometimes it ends there and, and that's fine but sometimes it goes further than that and you know, that's that's an element of the game that a club like Roma or any club doesn't want to be associated with so um, yeah, that's, that's really where I was coming from with that. But that's a, that's a very wide topic to tackle. Um, I, I'd rather ask you, like, do you, do you have any experience of what it's like to be in Italy on, on a European night like this? I, I know that you haven't been to a Champions League game, but I remember you, you've, you've been to a very similar one in terms of uh, international fiction, right?
0: Yeah, I've never been to a Champions League match, Europa League match. The, only, the closest thing I've been to is uh, Italy-England friendly back, uh, got to be about five, six years ago now um up in the uh, juventus stadium i got to go with a couple of my cousins who live up in torino um mm. definitely a cool atmosphere but it wasn't like a sold out packed house or anything like that being a friendly mm. so um you know i can't really compare it the you know it's not apples to apples you know so to speak yeah. so yeah. um just just you know set out matches and, and that but um you know watching it certainly. on tv you certainly have to enjoy the atmosphere at some of those european matches
1: yeah, fair enough. I, I myself don't have any experience of uh, being at the Olympico on a European night or even being at the Olimpico at all, Funny enough. I've been to the San Siro. Um, I've been in other other seasons, but still not in Rome. Uh, I do have... I've been to the bridge uh, for Champions League nights and I definitely enjoyed it. Uh, again, like you could definitely call me a plastic fan because I, I remember at the bridge on European nights there, they literally put plastic flags in the seats for fans to, to wave around during the game, that it's, just, it's just a way to make the club look better when you get the casual fan to, to really join in and have some fun. And uh, I enjoy it. You know, I re- really do love the atmosphere at the bridge um, on Wednesdays and Tuesday nights, uh, maybe even Thursday nights. I've never been to a Europa League fixture in my life. Uh, but, uh, you know, I enjoy it. I don't know what it's like in league, but maybe you out there listening uh, to Across the Reverse, maybe you do know. So if you if you have your personal experience to share, of watching a Roma game in Europe, we would love to hear from you, we really mean it. Um, If you could find us at Totti on Twitter, or if you could find us at uh, uh, whichever way you prefer, find us on the forum. Uh, You know, if you're a member there and you want to leave your comment uh, on the forum, more than welcome to, we're more than happy to listen and and hear your story. Uh, That's really been, this has been episode one, the first part one of a four part series on the Champions League run of 2017-18. We hope you enjoy it and uh, we'll be back for part two very soon.